It was an overused saying in Oregon, nothing happens in Bly. Bly, Oregon boasted a population just shy of 800 people in the time leading up to World War II. It was a quiet logging community in the scenic forested mountains of the Pacific Northwest. It had everything a small town needed, a general store, a bar, a small hotel, old folks eager for the next hunting season, and young folks eager to move somewhere bigger. It was a small town straight out of central casting. But it was in this quiet community where the horrors of World War II struck the closest to home. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 10, The Balloon Bomb. During the tail end of World War II, three miners in Thermopolis, Wyoming, were leaving the mine shaft after a hard day's work. One of the miners pointed a dusty finger to the sky. Above them was what looked like a fluttering white circle. Against the sunset, the miners could make out just a small object falling from that white circle. The miners watched as it fell to the earth. When it hit, a plume of fire erupted into the sky. The miners assumed it to be a parachute and hopped into a pickup truck to follow it. They followed it until the road ended and the mysterious object floated into the twilight. Around the same time, 500 miles away in Colorado, a father and son were working in their barn when they heard an explosion. When they ran outside, they found only a smoking crater in their backyard. In Lame Deer, Montana, grazing cows were interrupted by a smoldering balloon that suddenly fell to the earth. In a fishing village in Alaska, a native fisherman caught remnants of what seemed to be a white balloon in his net. In Rigby, Idaho, a balloon attached to pieces of charred metal was pulled from a telephone pole. Cases like these popped up all throughout the winter of 1944. California, in Nebraska, in Arizona, in Canada. Each time a balloon was found, local authorities reported it up the bureaucratic chain until it reached the biggest bureau of them all, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. At this point, the FBI attempted to connect the dots. However, they needed more information. Quietly, they sent out requests to rural sheriff stations to try to bring in a balloon intact. Warren Hyde, a broad-shouldered local sheriff who would look right at home as the star of a spaghetti western, was working in northern Utah when he got a call from a local farmer about one of these strange balloons. He got in his cruiser and rushed to the farm. When he arrived, he immediately saw the balloon floating near the ground. He unstrapped his holster containing his 38 pistol and took off running towards the mysterious balloon. The thing was massive. A huge white spherical balloon 30 feet in diameter floated through the sky. From it, four thick ropes held up a metal contraption that looked like a chandelier. Sheriff Hyde sprinted towards that contraption. He jumped up and grabbed one of the ropes, but as he did, he was lifted off the ground and was pulled several dozen feet into the air by a gust of wind. He tried to wrangle the balloon to the ground, but was lifted even higher. The balloon carried him across a canyon. What a sight it was for the farmer who had made the call. Sheriff Hyde was now hundreds of feet off the ground. Once on the other side of the canyon, the balloon lowered until he was dragging on the ground. He hooked his foot under some brush 
and wrestled the rope down until he could tie it to an exposed root. Later, Sheriff Hyde was surprised to learn of the bombs strapped to the metal contraption. One of the bombs could have gone off at any time while he was hanging on the balloon, but the FBI got their balloon. J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the FBI, sent Sheriff Hyde a personal letter of gratitude. The balloon was taken to Aberdeen Military Institute and examined closely. From what they could tell, the balloon was equipped to drop small incendiary bombs. Small markings on the metal casings looked like Japanese lettering. That was no surprise, seeing as the United States was currently at war with Japan. At first, the balloons were believed to have come from Japanese internment camps. However, after testing by forensic geologists, the sand and the sandbags could only come from one place, Japan itself. The FBI realized they had a terrible choice to make, either release the information on the balloons to the public and risk mass panic, or keep the whole thing quiet and hope for the best. They chose the latter. The wartime censorship committee threatened any newspaper that tried to publish anything about the Japanese napalm balloons. So 99% of Americans never had a clue. It was a beautiful day in Bly. Churchgoers from the Christian Missionary Alliance Church left the Sunday service using bulletins to shield their eyes from the sun. After service, the pastor, a man named Archie Mitchell, found his wife Elsie in the Sunday school room. She looked beautiful, five months pregnant and surrounded by several of the older children that she had just been teaching about Noah's Ark or the Sermon on the Mount. One of them, Sherman, ran up to Archie and begged him to let them go on a picnic. All of the other kids echoed a similar sentiment. The reverend looked up at his pregnant wife and sighed. She just smiled back. A few minutes later, Archie was loading fishing poles and picnic baskets into the trunk of the station wagon. Archie, his wife, and five of her Sunday school students piled into the car and headed up a winding road near Gearhart Mountain. The road leading up to their normal campsite was closed. Two forest workers pointed the Mitchells and the children to a different site close by. Archie parked the car and the children ran out, slamming their car doors eager to find the perfect picnic spot. Elsie, hand on her stomach, followed the children while Archie went to grab the picnic baskets and fishing poles. One of the boys yelled out, saying he had found something. It looked like a balloon. The origins of this mysterious balloon found by the Mitchells and the Sunday school children can be found in 1942. The Doolittle Raid had just succeeded in firebombing the Japanese capital of Tokyo, with the American bombers flying directly over the Emperor's palace. The raid itself was fairly unsuccessful in doing much physical damage, but was wildly successful in doing damage to the morale of the Japanese people. The Japanese sought to do a similar thing to the United States. Now, the Japanese Navy was stretched too thin to pull off something like the Doolittle Raid, but they did have something else on their side. The wind. The powerful wind currents in the upper atmosphere, later known as the jet stream. At that time, they weren't fully understood. But Japan had a rudimentary understanding of these winds, with some prominent meteorologists noticing that pollen from Japanese plants is often found in the west coast of the United States. They began testing with balloons, and found that once the balloons hit around 30,000 feet, 
they would be pushed east at speeds of up to 180 miles per hour. In cities all over Japan, the military conscripted schoolgirls to glue together paper sheets to create these massive balloons. Three hydrogen facilities were created to begin filling the balloons up. Once the balloons were created, large incendiary bombs were attached to a chandelier-type device on the bottom. The intention was to start massive forest fires all throughout North America that would divert resources and cause the American war machine to grind to a halt. These balloons were taken to the eastern coast of Japan and released, thousands at a time. Onlookers said that they looked like massive white jellyfish. Over the course of a few months, just over 9,000 balloons were released. And one ended up in Bly, Oregon, surrounded by Sunday school children and a pregnant Elsie Mitchell. She yelled up to her husband, saying that he should probably come take a look at this. Archie closed the trunk and headed towards the rest of the group, picnic baskets in hand. One of the boys touched the device. A massive eruption of flame shot out from the strange object. Shrapnel launched out in every direction. Elsie Mitchell, Edward Ingen, Jay Gifford, Joan Patsky, Dick Patsky, and Sherman Shoemaker all died instantly. Archie dropped the picnic baskets and sprinted towards his wife, whose burning clothes were now melting onto her motionless body. He fell to his knees and began trying to extinguish the flames on his wife with his jacket. The corpses of the other children lay burning beside them. Down the road, those two forest workers heard the loud explosion and came running. They arrived at the gruesome scene of Reverend Archie Mitchell screaming over his dead pregnant wife, surrounded by five dead children. Within hours, military vehicles began descending on Bly. A man in military dress with a chest full of medals made a base camp at the phone office where the old switchboards for phones were located. He told the nervous switchboard operators to remain calm. Words slowly circulated through the town that something had gone wrong, but they didn't know the details. Dozens of townsfolk surrounded the phone office, some of them family members of the victims, yelling, screaming, wanting answers. Eventually, the military officers told the town what had happened, that a Japanese bomb had blown up, killing Elsie and the children. People were in shock. They were at war, sure, but that war was happening overseas, not here in a small town in Oregon. The next day, after the bodies were transported back down to the town, a military vehicle was driving through, but stopped for supplies. In the back of the vehicle was a Japanese woman and her son being transported to an internment camp. They emerged from the camouflage canvas of the trunk bed to get some water only to see an angry crowd of men and women. The crowd was so upset that they began throwing rocks at the woman and her son. The Japanese woman sheltered her son as they retreated into the back of the military truck. To this town, the woman and her son represented what had killed some of their own. The Japanese balloon bomb program was designed to cause panic and terror in the United States. For the most part, it failed, except in Bly where the terrors of war were felt closer to home than anyone in that small town ever thought possible. The wartime censorship committee got a ton of flack for what happened in Bly. 
for many, the blood of those victims was on their hands. But the war was all but over, and what the townsfolk had experienced in Bly was nothing compared to what the residents of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would experience in a few months. But the national press remained quiet about the sole victims of Japanese balloon bomb offensive, and that might be why you've never heard this story before. A monument was created at the site of the tragedy. During the monument dedication ceremony, then-Oregon Governor Douglas McKay said that Elsie Mitchell and the five youth were casualties of war just as surely as if they had been in uniform. The area is now known as the Mitchell Monument. It is the only location in the continental United States where Americans were killed during World War II as a direct result of enemy action. For Archie Mitchell, everything in Bly reminded him of the tragedy and the loss of his beloved Elsie. So, in 1947, he volunteered to go on a dangerous mission trip to Vietnam. He and a few others ministered to a remote leper colony deep in the jungle of Vietnam. One day, soldiers from what would soon become the Viet Cong entered the camp and took all the missionaries with them, including Archie Mitchell. None of them were ever seen again. Tragedy seemed like an old friend to the Mitchells. 31 years later, in 1976, Sakiao Adachi, a Japanese scientist who helped plan the balloon offensive, visited the Mitchell Memorial. He laid a wreath on the monument and expressed the utmost regret for his role in the creation of the balloon bombs. He sent a letter to the families of the victims, telling of his sorrow for the part he played in their loss. Later in 1995, a group of Japanese women who had helped make the balloons as children visited the monument and laid origami birds, a Japanese symbol of peace, on the monument. With them, they brought six cherry trees to plant near the site. Today, if you visit the monument, you can see the cherry trees surrounding an old pine tree with still visible shrapnel scars. Historium is a history podcast with new episodes coming out every other Wednesday. If you like what you heard here, rate the show on iTunes. That's the best way for the podcast to gain new listeners. Additionally, you can like Historium on Facebook, and now Historium is on Twitter. If you like historical photos with 140-character commentaries, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. That is at underscore Historium. As always, thanks for listening.